We're looking at the subject this morning, the hurt of loneliness. And our text is 1 Timothy chapter 5. The first thing you'll notice about loneliness is we want to talk about being all alone. That's in your bulletin outline. Our text this morning, taken from 1 Timothy 5, instructs Timothy, Paul's associate and fellow servant in the gospel, concerning the church's obligation to care for widows. The church is not the government, so it has to set some rules for whom the church is to provide and who not. And here's what he says in verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Okay, fair enough. But how do we determine those widows who are really in need? Look at verse 4. Let's read on. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family members and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Then skip down to verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now you can see immediately that Paul is referencing family members who are Christians. Our faith in God dictates, among other things, what John points out, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or his sister, and these are brothers or sisters in the faith, in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3, verse 17 and 18. So the Christian perspective is that we look upon our church congregation, and if we see people in need, we help them. And so Paul's point here in 1 Timothy is that the first line of help from God's viewpoint is the Christian children and grandchildren helping to meet the needs of a widowed mother or grandmother. And that would be a widower too. What about a dad that has no wife anymore? And thereby not burdening the church with these financial outlays that should be resolved within family. I was in Lansing this uh, past week for Older Michiganian Day Celebration. I guess that tells you where that puts me. <laughs> Older Michiganian Day Celebration. Where it was announced that our governor has signed into law eight of the elder abuse legislation bills that senior coalitions and other senior advocates have been working on since 2007. Yes, for five years, we have been trying to get elder abuse laws passed in the Michigan legislature. Now, the question comes, why would the state of Michigan need elder abuse laws? That's a good question. Because, and here's the stats, more than 60% of abuse for our seniors age 65 and older come from their children or their grandchildren. That might surprise you. This legislation that has now become law deals with all kinds of physical and verbal abuse. The eight laws that were passed. Now, there remains, however, another four laws yet to be approved, yet to be signed by the governor, and every one of them deal with financial abuse of seniors, in which the children or the grandchildren who have financial power of attorney or have their names jointly on mom and dad or the grandparents' bank accounts go into the bank and empty that account for their own personal pleasure, their own personal use, pure greed. They want to buy a boat. They want to buy a house. They want to take a vacation to Paris, whatever. 
And the result is that the parents and the grandparents are left destitute and unable to support themselves in their old age. Brethren, this is our world. This is the United States. This is the state of Michigan. But it must not be the state of the Christian church. The first line of help for the Christian elderly is the family. And listen to Paul's strong conclusion here. It's in our text, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith, he is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. Pretty strong. Contemplate this. How would denying the faith and behaving worse than an unbeliever, how would that play out eternally? That's a rather foreboding thought when you think about it. I'll leave you to think about that. Paul's very strong. Who then should the church help? Verse 5. The widow who is really in need, and get the next phrase, left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. So right in the middle of this injunction is the phrase, left all alone. Meaning that she has no children. She has no grandchildren to care for her. Or, or... Because her children and grandchildren are unbelievers and refuse to care for her, she has to fend for herself. Observe, brethren, that long before the government came to the aid of destitute people, the Church of Jesus Christ, in obedience to their Lord and following in His footsteps, has been providing aid to the hungry, to the naked, to the homeless, to the indigent for centuries. Centuries. No one is more needy than a childless widow with no savings account and no pension from her deceased husband. Could have been lost in the volatility of the stock market in our day. And boy, a lot of that's going on. There was no social security from the government. We have an example of one such in the woman Anna, spoken about in the book of Acts. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Luke 2, verse 36 and 37. Now think about this. A short, a short seven-year marriage, and then she's a widow. Seven years is hardly enough time for a husband of a meager salary to save enough earnings to support his widowed wife. Anna obviously had no children. And for this, these reasons, Anna lived in the temple quarters and was supported by the temple treasury. Anna was a widow left all alone in accord with Paul's criteria for support, 1 Timothy 5. She busied herself, busied herself with those spiritual exercises that Paul commends. Luke 2, verse 37, she never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Now that doesn't mean that 24 hours a day she was fasting and praying, doing all, she obviously had other responsibilities and so on, but it's giving the general tenor of her life. Being all alone is one of the breeding grounds for loneliness. It sounds so simple as to be stupid. But I can tell you that in our county, in the senior center complexes in Lapeer, there are dozens and dozens of lonely seniors whose loneliness is directly related to their isolation. And they don't have a clue. 
they don't have a clue. One of the good things that federal dollars do for Michigan and other states, in my opinion, is what is called Meals on Wheels. You have to qualify. I mean, one of the qualifications is that you yourself are unable to grocery shop and prepare your own meals, or you have no spouse or other family member that can do that, those kind of things for you. And so meals are therefore prepared and they're delivered to your dwelling at minimal or no cost, depending on your ability to pay. And these meals are delivered in two ways. If you live alone in your own house or in your own apartment, the meal is brought to your door. This is twice a day. It goes on in Lapeer County, other counties, every day. Five days a week at least. But if you live in an apartment complex, like a senior complex, we have two of them that I know about in Lapeer, the meal is delivered to a large dining hall in that complex or to your apartment door. If you choose the dining hall, there will be dozens of other seniors sitting around tables, chatting together, eating their meals together. They, we call them congregate meals, talking about life, interacting, and so forth, having social interaction. If you choose your apartment, you will be eating alone with nothing more than the TV to keep you company. Guess what the majority of seniors choose? They choose to eat alone in their apartments. It's a great frustration to us that are working in senior coalition and things of those nature. And then they wonder why they are so lonely. Lonely. There's reasons for this. They're scared. I understand that. They're wary of strangers. And in our culture, we have made privacy a cult. You know. Yes, they were left all alone. There, there's no spouse. There's no children. There's no grandchildren to chat with. But they've aggravated their plight by refusing social interaction with their peers who are in the same boat. In the same boat. I have to tell you, the people in the senior complexes in Lapeer, it's rare that their families even show up to visit them. I understand shyness. I understand shyness. I do. But for my own mental well-being and my spiritual growth, I force myself into social situations where I am compelled by the very nature of the event to interact with people in conversation, in listening to others tell their stories, in laughing, in crying if need be, all with the goal of sharing the gospel and to be a spiritual help to people in need. So to the lonely here this morning, whose loneliness is due to isolation, that is to say, you have been left all alone. The church is your safe haven. The fellowship of God's people in our times of worship, but also in our times of just sitting around a meal in fellowship hall. By the way, we do that every Sunday night at Pilgrim's Progress where we have a luncheon first for a full half hour or so. Just sit and chat, enjoy one another. These are occasions for you to enter into and be part of a family that is just as real and just as comforting as anything you may have ever experienced among your blood relatives. And I have had people say to me, Pastor, the church is more a home to me than my own family. Now that might be hard for some of you to believe, but that's been said to me a number of times. And it's usually because the family has no time for God, 
No time for spiritual things. And they're uncomfortable being around a Christian. So the Christian figures out, I'm making people uncomfortable. All the people of the world want to do is sit around and drink beer and tell off colored jokes and curse and whine and complain about life and politics, none of which is healthy for godly growth. And so there's a loneliness there and there's no family connect there anymore. Peter talks about this. He says, you know, they wonder, the pagan wonders why you don't, why don't you get out there and party with them anymore on the weekend? Because we have a new ambition in life. It's to please our God and become like his son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Do you know that the early church pattern is still viable today? Here's what it was. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, that's what you're doing now. Apostolic teaching. We're teaching from the writings of the apostles. They devoted themselves to apostolic teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Acts 2, verse 42. By the way, Paul warned, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Good question. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? He goes on, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God, on the one hand, and idols? On the other hand, for we are the temple of the living God. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. So there is a sense in which we are separated ideologically and philosophically and religiously because we're not into the idolatry of the world anymore. The Apostle John puts it this way. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7. So the first answer here is that the church is a safe haven for loneliness due to isolation. Get out of the apartment. Get out of your little world and become part of the fellowship of God's people. So that's the loneliness of isolation. Secondly, there is loneliness that is the loneliness of heart. There's an automobile ad running on TV right now sporting the option of seven-passenger seating. Three couples occupy six seats, But poor doofus Matt, who has no wife, likely from a pagan viewpoint, no girlfriend with whom to travel. And so the whole commercial is Matt on the beach trying to apply sunscreen to his own back. Or Matt in his canoe going down river behind three other canoes with couples in them. And finally, Matt sitting around the evening campfire alone while the other people bed down for the night. Now, this is not not loneliness of isolation. I mean, Matt is on vacation with six other friends. Rather, this is loneliness of heart. Matt has no one with whom to share his life. He's just a seventh seat tag-along with three other people who are accompanied by their sweethearts. It's this kind of loneliness and it's just as real as isolation. Sometimes more so. This is not good. (laughs) Though it can be spiritually profitable as we're going to see. Remember that Adam kept busy in Eden, pruning trees, naming animals, enjoying a sinless environment without mosquitoes and gnats and more deadly pests. But even within this pristine environment, God himself made this astute observation. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Genesis 2, verse 19 and 20. The word here in Hebrew for suitable means a compatible aid, a, a partner. Animals he had, but a suitable partner for himself. No, he didn't have that. Now, again, Adam was not totally isolated from living creatures. Many people live quite happily, happy lives with just themselves and their pets. Nonetheless, God not only observed Adam to be without a suitable partner, but he gave this evaluation, Genesis 2, verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So obviously, God did not see the animal kingdom as a viable substitute for a wife. Aren't you wives glad? Animals and all, God concluded Adam was alone. Alone. What is this? This is loneliness of heart. Loneliness of heart. And it explains Adam's joy when God formed Eve from his rib and brought her to Adam. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's what the word woman means. Genesis 2, verse 23. What is he saying? He's saying, mm-mm, <laughs> I can get into this. You know, he finally had someone compatible to him. And he is already relating to Eve as distinct from the animal creation. She's like him, flesh and blood, suited to him as a lover and as a companion, possessing intelligence and reasoning and passion and knowledge and wisdom, which none of the animals had with regard to Adam. Still don't have, by the way, despite all the evolutionist hype. In my ministry, I've talked with a number of single adults whose ambition it is to become married and have their own wife or husband, as the case may be, and their own family. Much of the Old Testament histories deal with seeking out a partner for life through marriage, if you read them. Marriages were arranged by the family head, the father. In our day, there is a revival of Old Testament Patriarchy practices, believed in practice by some, that the father in a Christian home should choose the future wife or husband for his children. But this is not always a guaranteed road to happiness. Laban chose Leah for Jacob when Jacob loved Rachel. And thought he was marrying her. And even though Laban eventually gave Rachel as a second wife to Jacob, that patriarchal family could hardly be called a beacon of harmony and happiness. Their whole life was miserable. Kind as I can say it to the patriarchal group, there is no system, no system given in the new covenant which is our rule of faith, other than the proviso that we read earlier from Paul, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Translation, don't marry an unbeliever. Marry someone in the faith. That's Christian marriage 101 that we find in the scriptures. It should also be noted that Paul deals extensively with the single state in his teaching. It's not like he's lopsided. He deals with both. First Corinthians 7 he says, 
Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and 9. So he, he's telling us something here. And he's giving kind of both sides of the coin. Some have read this and they have concluded that the celibate life is the preferred Christian life. Y'all know that in Catholic circles, priests do not marry, nor do the nuns. They live life in a monastic environment. Mano, the Greek word for alone, but here meaning alone in the sense of the absence of the opposite sex. So, all the priests, all the nuns, separate quarters. They read that out of this text. All scripture, however, must be interpreted within context, else you can make the Bible say just about anything you want it to say. So I ask, what is the context here where Paul advocates remaining signal, single? What's he saying? Verse 26 and following. Because of the, you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians 7 and kind of follow along here. 1 Corinthians 7, 26 and following. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had done. And those who mourn as if they did not. And those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as though it were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Wow. What a, what a laundry list of foreboding references to living in the Roman world of Paul's day. He says, present crisis. You're going to face many troubles in life, number two. Time is short, number three. This world, is this present form, is passing away, number four. Those four things color what he says about remaining single. To what is Paul referring? He is talking about life as a Christian under Emperor Nero's persecution, of which Paul himself was a part. This bloody emperor, Nero had his half-brother, Britannicus, poisoned to death to squelch his rivalry to the throne. Just five years into his reign, he had his mother, Agrippina, bludgeoned to death after a rigged boat accident failed to drown her because she had the good common sense and strength to swim to shore. Next, he murdered his aunt. The man was egotistical. He was proud of his poetry and music, neither of which was very good. But he would have all these contests, kind of like uh, the star shows that we have on television. He'd go to different places where he would play and sing his own music, but he rigged those so that he always won the contest. He was into mystical religions. He actually conversed, it's recorded, with Simon Magnus, the sorcerer mentioned in Acts chapter 8. And he hated two classes of people, Jews and Christians. Why? Because they were monotheistic in their viewpoint, worshiping only the God of the Old Testament and not the emperor. 
who thought of himself as a god. In AD 64, a fire broke out in Rome that burned for nine days. They couldn't get it controlled. It destroyed Nero's palace. It destroyed all the tenement homes of the poor that were in the suburbs around the palace. And so Nero then came in and confiscated more than 300 acres in the middle of Rome so that he could build his new palace called the Golden House. Everything was gold. He had a portico on the front of his palace that ran for one mile. One mile. Made out of ivory. All kinds of lavish things. His dining area revolved once every 24 hours. I think of the tower in Toronto, is it, where the top restaurant on the top of that tower revolves around. He had a canopy on his golden temple that opened in the evening and showered the guests with petals of flowers and sprayed them with perfume. You say, we, we, we think uh, you need all kind of modern things to know how to do this stuff. He figured how to do it in ancient Rome. And so the rumor began to be circulated that Nero had started the fire himself so that he could confiscate the acreage for his new palace. So he needed a scapegoat and he blamed the Christians. And a severe persecution broke out. AD 64, Paul was beheaded four years later by Nero, AD 68. And at the end of that year, AD 68, Nero took his own life because he learned of a conspiracy among the senators in which they were out to kill him. They figured it out. Now this explains, brethren, Paul's advocacy of the single life for his day. Nero's seeds of persecution were already sprouting. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32 and following. He says, Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. There it is. That's the heart of it. Why is he saying you should be single like me? Because trouble's in the wind. That's why. He goes on. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of, those, of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. And then he says the same thing about a wife that loves her husband. She's all wrapped up in how she can please her husband and so on. And then he goes on. I'm saying this for your good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in individual devotion to the Lord. And then he closes the text, 1 Corinthians 7, by conceding, well, but if after all this, and you know all this, you still want to get married, that's acceptable and honorable. So he's not saying to singles, never get married. No, no. Celibate life is for you. He's saying, in light of what's going on in our society, you may want to reconsider this you may want to delay things. You may want to hold off a bit because you're going to be concerned about your wife. Or you're going to be concerned about your husband. What's going to happen when the authorities come knocking at your door to either arrest you or her or him? And your heart's going to be divided. To me, <laughs> this is very sound stuff, you know. I can see as a father me saying something like that to my children if... I knew the authorities were coming any minute to wreak havoc in their lives. Now that brings us to the biblical cures for the hurt of loneliness. Number one, cultivate associations and fellowship with your church family. I already alluded to this, but it deserves special mention here. The New Testament authors often speak about the need of Christian fellowship. God never meant for you to become a hermit or a recluse now that your spouse is gone or now that you are yet single. 
If you lack social skills, you can learn them through interaction with others, and there is no better environment to practice them than within the local church. Let me give you some characteristics of fellowship. This is not in your outline, but you can write them down. Number one, fellowship promotes unity, and it dispels division. Let me read it for you. God has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and He is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9 and 10. Now, not necessarily identical in mind and thought. He's not saying that. But united. That means that there's going to be a compromise that takes place for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity. Fellowship does that. It brings unity of mind and purpose to your life, to the church. Secondly, fellowship evidences grace. Again, Paul writing to the Galatians says in Galatians 2 verse 9, James, Peter, and John gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. What's he saying? Interaction and fellowship is for the people of grace. Those who who live, like yourself, have experienced the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God in salvation. And so because we're people of grace, we belong to the same spiritual family, we have like ambitions, like desires, like needs, like solutions, like methodology to get from point A to point B and so on. In other words, our social network is around the people of grace. You know what the social network is for the world? I'm talking about the hourly too. Casinos and bingo. I am appalled that some of the money for the seniors in our area is spent on hiring a tour bus that will take them to the casinos. They don't have enough money to pay their light bills but we provide a way for them to go and gamble. And the casinos cater to that. They will give tokens. They will give free meals. They will give free extra chips or whatever it is so that the seniors can gamble. They get them started. Free bus ride. Get them there. That's the world's idea of socialization. We need to think better. Thirdly, Fellowship permits us to share in Christ. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3, verse 10. Most of us wouldn't wish that upon ourselves, but Paul says, that's what I want. In Hebrews 10, the writer says in verse 33 and verse 34, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood right alongside by those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Jesus words it this way, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. See what I'm saying here? What he's saying? As we fellowship and we enter in even to the hurt of other people within the church family and so forth, we're entering into the sufferings of Christ. Matthew 25 verse 40. Associate and fellowship within the church. If we could get the concept, now I know you know the concept, that we are the body of Christ, but think, if, think really of a body. Your physical body. Think of your head and how the brain and the way you think and all the nerves that go down the spinal cord and work out to your hands and extremities, how your brain and your thinking controls all of your actions. And then think of Christ as the head of his church. And you all sitting together who are believers are members of his body. 
And so we work together and we think together and Christ motivates us together and we live together and we function together in our spiritual world with Christ as the head directing and us connected to him, yes, but also peripherally to each other. We'll do a lot to dispel loneliness. And then secondly and lastly, learn to value being alone. Say that, well, that's not much of a help. Oh, no, this is a great help. Learn to value it. Sometimes I stick my foot in my own mouth when I say to my wife, um, hey, you're home today. I'm home today. What do you say we get in a car and uh, just take a ride around the thumb and we'll stop in all the little towns there, all the little seaport cities and so forth. And her response to me is less than jubilant. Oh, she'll say. <laughs> She's disappointed. Not because she doesn't love me and not because she hates my company, but because she has planned a day for herself. A time to be alone without me. She has a project she wants to do. She has something that she wants to get done. She has a place she wants to go to. Whatever. And you know, I have to confess that I too do my best reflection my best contemplation when I am alone. We need the interaction of Christian fellowship, yes, but we also need time to be alone with our own thoughts. And this was practiced by our Lord Jesus. Let me read some for you. After he had dismissed them, he went up onto the mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Matthew 14, verse 23. After the feeding of the 5,000, which you all know about, Jesus dismissed the crowd and instructed his disciples to launch out in their boat for Bethsaida. And we read, After leaving them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. Mark 6, verse 46 and 47. And that's the occasion where he joins himself to the boat by walking on the water in the late evening. Or again we read, the whole town gathered at the door of where Jesus was staying, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Mark 1, 33-35. It was our Lord's practice just to cut himself loose from his disciples, good men as they were, from the world, and go get alone. Alone with his thoughts, alone with God. There's a lot to be said for being alone at times. Now the world has its view of this, but it's Kind of like this. Don't invade my space. That's the world's view of being alone. But our solitude is not to pamper ourselves. It is not to protect our privacy. But it's to recharge our spiritual batteries for service to others. And as a pastor, I've had to learn that I cannot be always giving out if I have no time to take in. Same for you. Pressures and demands of life will rob you of time for you. Even good things like family and friends and work, which I hope you love, I hope you enjoy your work, can become abusive if these things keep you from a personal relationship with God. Some here may not even know what I mean when I say a personal relationship with God. You do not know because you're far away from God. That's the problem. Your sin separates you from God, though he's not far from any of you. 
The separation is spiritual, not spatial. But you know something? There is an alone day, an alone day that is coming, which will be terror, not joy. It'll be trauma, not jubilation. Hell is not a public park with a reunion scheduled for you and all your wicked friends. There are no beer parties, no drug parties, no sex parties, and no dance parties in hell. None. Let me read it to you from Amos, the prophet, who in the Old Testament is talking about the day of the coming of God's Son. He says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Question, why do you long for the day of the Lord? Amos is asking this. Oh, let it come, let it come. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? He goes on. That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and he rested his hand on the wall only to be bitten by a snake. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Amos 5, 18 through 20. Well, that's pretty perceptive. Do you know that nothing can be seen in pitch darkness? Nothing. You need a little ray of light to be able to see. But if it's pitch darkness, there's no light. You can't see. The eye doesn't work unless it has light. You can't see your own hand held in front of your eyes, and you cannot see your wicked friends in the space next to you. There's no strobe lights. No party atmosphere. None of that in hell. Oh, and what will you hear in hell? You can't see them. What will you hear? Jesus answers, There will weep be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see, that is when you realize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. Luke 13, verse 28. Let me ask the question, why would anyone joke about going to hell? Not a place I want to go. I tell you this morning, flee from the wrath to come. Repent of your sins. Confess Christ as Savior and live. Don't go there. Escape from the wrath to come, we're told in the scriptures. Flee wickedness. Flee sin. Come to Christ. That's why he's come. If you're just living for this world and the things of this world, there is a loneliness coming that will last for eternity. No friend, no sight of a friend, no hearing, anything pleasant. There's just ongoing torture day and night. You say, well, my God wouldn't do. Your God does not exist. The God of the Bible is the God that exists. And Satan will come and say, oh, it's not so bad. Don't listen to Pastor Luke. It's not, it's not that bad. No, and I have to admit, it's not that bad. It's worse. I cannot even paint it for you. Words escape to paint it so that you understand God's wrath. He's a God of love on the one side. He's a God of wrath for those that disobey him on the other side. Why? Because he's provided a way to you to be forgiven and cleansed and to be reconciled to him, to come to him in love loving way. But if you will have nothing to do with Christ, he will have nothing to do with you. Let's pray. Father, help us in our loneliness to, first of all, be reconciled to God. There, there's where, boy, we're strangers right there. That's, 
That's number one, the animosity right there, the hatred, the bitterness, the great gulf, the great distance. Bring us to yourself today, Lord Jesus. Oh, I know, we, we love our sin. We love sinning. We love our sinful world and all of the sinful pleasures that it affords to us. We love those things right now a whole lot because that's what we are. We're sinners by birth and by practice. And that nature is catered to by the world and everything in the world. But you say in the scriptures that the world is your enemy. You say in the scriptures that anyone that makes himself a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. But here we are. We're worldlings. We are friends of the world. We need your intervention. We need you to pull us away. We need you to come by your Holy Spirit and draw us out of the world. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Change our actions. We won't do it for ourselves. We don't have faith in you. We don't believe in you. But Lord, we ask that you will come and grant us all of these things which are so depleted in our lives and bring us to the Creator, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Deliver us from the loneliness of Christians. Help us to really enter into the fellowship of God's saints. Help us also to understand that there's a place for isolation. There's a place for being alone, that we may contemplate God, think our own thoughts, think about life, think about what's real and what's not, what's valuable and what's not. All of that's good if it leads us to you. I pray that it will. Bless each one here today. Bless, bless our, our video audience, audience this, today throughout the country and throughout different parts of the world. May they hear the gospel today in Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.